0: Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire, and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Thomas Whitfield, a sex therapist, educator, and researcher based in New York City. His clinical work involves a diverse population of couples and individuals and most of his research to date has focused on HIV prevention in the LGBTQ population. Thomas is one of the co-hosts of the podcast, The Obsessibles, and he has a YouTube channel called Shit They Won't Tell You in Sex Ed, which I was previously a guest on. This episode is going to be all about LGBTQ sexuality. Specifically, in the first part of the program, we'll talk about common issues that come up in sex and relationship therapy with LGBTQ persons. And in the second half, We'll talk about maintaining sexual health for sexual and gender minorities i'm really excited for this conversation so let's get to it hi thomas and welcome to the sex and psychology podcast
1: hey thank you
0: thanks so much for joining me it's great to have a chance to see you and speak with you again i think the last time we saw each other was a couple of years ago at this point In New York City and we met up to film an episode of your YouTube series and then went out for margaritas. That was a lot of fun and I hope we can do it again sometime.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would guess that that was probably like three years ago at this point. Having recently completed graduate school, which is almost a year at this point, it just seems like almost the last decade of my life in school has been, I don't know, it just seems to have come and gone So the idea of time in some ways doesn't seem like it exists always.
0: Yeah, the perception of time in graduate school is one thing. And then also the perception of time during the pandemic is a whole other thing. And everything is just a blur at this point. So to get started, I always like to ask my guests to tell us a little bit about their professional journey. So can you tell us how you got into the world of sex education, research and therapy? What's the story behind how you got into this business?
1: Yeah, for me, I went back to undergrad for psychology and I decided that I wanted to go to graduate school and I specifically wanted to do clinical psychology and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to need an internship. So I got on my school's website, which I did my undergrad at Hunter College here in New York City, and I started looking at the different psych labs in the school to try and find one that interested me the most. And what I came across was the Center for HIV Education studies and training, I went and looked at their website. And I was like, Oh, I love sex. I love psychology. Like these two can go hand in hand. What is this about? So I was a junior in undergrad, I got this internship, and that introduced me to this entire field. And then while they're doing research, I got to stick my foot in the water of doing more clinical work and working with patients, specifically the LGBTQ population. Then I got into graduate school, ended up working for the same mentor at the same lab all through my doctoral program and just started doing more and more clinical work and fell in love with it. And one thing led to another. (laughs)
0: So you started out as more of a researcher, but now you're more of a a therapist and, and also a sex educator as well. Is there anything else specific in terms of like what really drew you to therapy over, say, focusing your career on research?
1: Yeah. So I think when I went into it, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. And then I just found that when I interacted with research participants in some of our our studies, mostly doing motivational interviewing and cognitive behavioral therapy, I just loved it so much more than sitting down and reading and writing papers and running stats. Those are things that I have the ability to do. But when it comes down to it, I would rather spend eight hours a day in a room with with an individual patient than eight hours a day running stats and writing papers. And I've worked with a ton of people who love doing that. And it just is not as much for me in terms of enjoyment.
0: Yeah, totally understandable. And the life of a researcher can get a little lonely because it's really just you and your computer sitting there together most of the time. So I definitely understand that. So let's talk sex therapy. I know that you treat a diverse population base but I want to focus on sex therapy specifically with LGBTQ persons in this episode because I haven't really done a deep dive into that subject on the podcast yet and I think we're overdue for it so as a starting point let's talk about some common issues that come up in sessions with LGBTQ clients and I can imagine that some of them are going to be the same issues that you're going to see with cisgender heterosexual clients such as you know with men erectile issues you know that's something that doesn't know any boundaries when it comes to sexual orientation but I can also imagine that some of the issues are going to be different. So for example, we know from research that women who are partnered with women tend to have fewer problems with orgasm compared to women who are partnered with men. So you might see fewer orgasmic issues with say lesbian clients compared to heterosexual women. So tell us a little bit more about this. You know, what are some of the common issues that you see with LGBTQ clients and how are they similar or different from work that you do with cisgender, heterosexual
1: clients? So I think that when it comes to LGBTQ clients, specifically gay and bisexual men, that there's a lot more substance use involved within the adult population than what I see with my adult cisgender, heterosexual patients. There may be some substance use that comes up, but with the gay and bisexual men that I work with, it is almost always there to some degree and impacting their life in a a specific way where they are maybe engaging in substance use and then engaging in sexual behaviors that are not within the boundaries of the relationship that they have set up. So then that becomes an issue about monogamy, non monogamy, about consensual non monogamy. So that is something that I think is just markedly different between the two populations. And then there's the coming out experience, which I see with a lot of younger people that I've worked with. So a a good amount of the gay and bisexual men that I work with right now are maybe in college. I have worked with younger populations in the past, but even ones that are in college into their 20s, into their 30s are still managing sort of coming out. And with social media now, too, that becomes a new factor of what are my friends and family seeing on social media? A post that I was tagged in? Does my mother follow me on Instagram and saw that someone tagged me in something that has a pride flag on it so there there are these issues of coming out that come up. I would say that those are probably the two biggest things that are the the biggest differences. Surprisingly, in the therapy that I'm currently doing, not a ton about sexual health comes up in terms of the patient bringing it up.
0: That's interesting. And so I have a couple of follow up questions to that. So, with regard to the higher rates of substance use that you see, especially among gay and bisexual men, why is that? You know, why is there this elevated rate of substance use? And what are some of the different theories or reasons that might explain that. And I think you may have touched upon some of this in some of the research that you've done with minority stress and so forth. But can you tell us a little bit more about why that elevated rate of substance use is there to begin with?
1: Yeah, I think that people in the LGBTQ community want to be accepted. And from a very young age, you know, people that are part of that community do not feel like they are accepted for who they are. And when we engage in substance use as human beings, we become more disinhibited, and that allows us to engage with parts of ourselves that maybe we wouldn't otherwise. So it becomes very alluring. There's more of a um, there are is more of a positive affect that comes up for people that are LGBTQ when they are engaging in substance use because you feel more accepted. You feel like you belong there can be a euphoric feeling that comes along with it that just allows you to connect in different ways so if you've been kind of trying to deny part of yourself for so long these substances can allow you to sort of be more I was going to say unlock them but not really unlock just be more comfortable with them
0: yeah so the disinhibition part is is certainly a big portion of that right because when you engage in substance use, that can allow you the opportunity to engage with those parts of yourself that maybe you otherwise haven't been comfortable engaging with.
1: And it could be emotional, it could be physical, it could be, you know, it, it doesn't just mean like getting drunk and acting wild, but getting, getting intoxicated and being able to be more yourself and feel comfortable with it, which could just be kissing someone of the same sex as you
0: yeah and I also have to imagine another part of this is also just escapism in terms of dealing with prejudice, discrimination, and stigma that LGBTQ individuals face and so part of the appeal of substance use is, is escaping that burden of of all of that stigma as well and then once people are using substances at a higher level, you know that creates a whole host of issues that might lead them to seek out Professional help from someone like you because we know that a lot of these substances can create sexual difficulties. For example, with alcohol and molly or ecstasy, you know, we know that these are substances that often impair erectile function and create other sexual difficulties when consumed in large quantities. Marijuana has somewhat different sexual effects, it's less likely to cause those kinds of sexual problems in terms of performance but it can create other issues because you know the effects of marijuana are just a little bit different on the body and mind compared to some of these other substances but i can certainly see how this could be a big issue and then also further how it could impact people's relationships and and create conflict especially if one partner is using substances and the other isn't or if when one partner is using substances they do things that are not within the rules of their relationship agreement you know that could create a whole other set of issues but In terms of something else you mentioned, you also talked about the coming out process and that being a reason why a lot of young people are seeking sex therapy. I think that's going to be surprising to some people because, right, this is 2021. And, you know, we're reading news articles about people coming out at younger and younger ages. And, you know, you're based in New York City, which is a pretty liberal place politically and also in terms of, you know, views on sexuality. So I'm curious as to, you know, to hear a little bit more about your thoughts on the coming out process and how it's different today or why it's still so much of an issue, despite all of the progress that has been made in recent years when it comes to LGBTQ equality.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I would definitely agree that I think the coming out process now is probably much easier for a lot of people than maybe it was, you know, 20 years ago when I came out or 40 years ago when the generation before me was coming out. But there are also a lot of things that have stayed the same. So there's been all this change politically and socially when it comes to LGBTQ issues. But one of the things that stayed the same is a lot of religion Being anti LGBTQ. And I think that the patients that come to me that are struggling with their sexuality the most are the ones who come from families where there are very strict religious beliefs and where they have received a lot of messaging that there is something wrong with being part of the LGBTQ community. And as we've been seeing, that when specifically right now with the trans community, as there is more visibility, there's more pushback you know, there are more laws that come out that try to restrict access to medical care for people who are trans. So as much as there is a step forward, sometimes when a step forward happens, there's also a bigger wall built in front of the next step. And I think that that has a huge impact on younger people. I just think that as much as there have been these steps forward, there have also been this larger way of sort of trying to push back.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: There's, there's so much fear involved with young people and coming out. And I would say that the majority of young people that I've worked with who have come out at some point in our process together, the experience has not been as bad as they expected it to be, as bad as they thought that it was going to be. But there's so much stress and anxiety before that of is this going to be the thing that makes my parents not love me is this going to be the thing that makes me have to get kicked out of the house makes me have to become an adult right now and it becomes a very real fear and it could happen the reality is is it could happen
0: yeah so related to this i'm curious about kind of how you deal with this in your clinical work so especially in cases where people have some internalized homophobia where they are lgbtq but they're uncomfortable with their own sexuality because they've internalized the negative societal messages that they've heard how do you deal with a problem like that clinically how do you help people come to terms with their sexuality if they're uncomfortable with it
1: so because I am primarily a CBT therapist, I am always looking at people's thoughts. I'm very cognitive focused and I, I look at what their affect is, how the thoughts are impacting their affect, and then I work with them from there. So if they're having all of these negative thoughts about themselves that are leading them to feel poorly about a specific issue you know, like their sexuality. We look at the thoughts that lead to it and then look for cognitive distortions. So I help them to be able to notice when they are thinking things through a specific lens that is leading them to feel worse about themselves. And we talk about, is that helpful for you or is that not helpful for you? And if it's not helpful for you, how can we switch it? And it's not about looking at things and being positive, but about looking at things in a realistic manner. And often when people are experiencing internalized homophobia, there are a lot of cognitive distortions that are going on about how they believe others are going to view them. Because a lot of this internalized homophobia is based on the reflection of what you see in society. So as much as it is internal and perhaps your own thoughts, those thoughts that you have are really reflections of what you've seen happen in society.
0: Yeah. So it's a complex issue as everything is when it comes to sex therapy.
1: And on top of that, you know, like coming out is not the right answer for everyone. And that's something that I help them navigate. It's not as though I I have decided like, "Oh no, you you are this thing and therefore you owe it to the community to be gay and to come out and to be proud." For some people, that's just not part of who they are right now. And it's really important that when working with LGBTQ people that you, I mean, working with anyone, but specifically this population, when it comes to things like coming out, like you have to meet them with where they are.
0: Yeah. And I can also imagine that there's some complex mixed messaging that young people who are in that process of coming out or thinking about coming out or dealing with so on the one hand you might have some feelings of pressure from your family to not come out because they might not be accepting but on the other hand you see all this messaging in the lgbt community about how important it is to come out and how everyone should come out and you know so some people might feel like they're a bad gay or a bad bisexual if they don't come out and acknowledge their sexuality and so i can see how that would you know, create all of this pressure on people in different directions that could be hard to to manage and navigate. And I think we have to recognize that sexuality is personal, you know, to that individual. And it's ultimately, you know, your decision, not somebody else's in terms of what is the, the best thing for you in terms of how you manage and navigate your identity and the coming out process and so forth.
1: It's interesting that you point that out because I see it with that sort of I owe it to society to come out. I owe it to LGBTQ people to come out. I see that more from older LGBTQ people as opposed to younger LGBTQ people.
0: Yeah. And I'm not surprised by that. And I think there are big generational differences that, you know, you could have a whole discussion about that. And, you know, I've heard from some older LGBTQ people who don't really understand why some young people find it challenging to come out today because the, you know, bar is so much lower than it was when they came out because, you know, marriage equality exists in the United States, throughout the country today. And that's something that, you know, a lot of younger LGBTQ people that I've talked to, like, they sometimes don't seem to grasp what a struggle it was for that to happen and how recent of a phenomenon that was and how hard people had to fight for so long to be able To do that. And so you do see this interesting dynamic within the LGBTQ community where there is some tension based on generation in terms of how they view this whole process because the environment in which they grew up and in which they came out is just so drastically radically different.
1: Yeah, I think that there, there are definitely those generational changes. And then also where people live in the country. So you and I both live in large you know, metropolitan areas. And a, a few years ago, I was working on a research study where we were doing clinical work with young gay and bisexual men who were under 18. They were all 16 to 18. And it was a five-session intervention, mostly focused around helping them access PrEP. And I was working specifically in person with young people in New York City, but then also doing virtual work with people across the country because I've lived in New York for almost 20 years. So it was a huge reminder that outside of these large metropolitan areas, there are young gay people that are still having very similar experiences as 40 years ago that do not feel safe coming out, no matter how many people are on tv shows that are gay that like it is still not okay for them and they have access to no one to talk to it about there were a few instances in which i was the first gay person that they had ever spoken to
0: knowingly yeah
1: knowingly yes that they were engaging with for a longer period of time and then some who had engaged with a lot of gay people but mostly for sex and through the use of of sexual networking apps
0: Yeah. And so I think that's such an important point that regionally within the U S and then also if you expand that and look cross culturally, you know, the experience is drastically different depending on where you live and what the attitudes are in your local environment and culture. Something else I wanted to talk about is I know you also do some work with couples and relationships. And so I'm curious to hear a little bit more about some of the issues that come up in sex and relationship therapy with lgbtq couples and i know you hinted a little bit earlier that you know there are some issues sometimes around monogamy and infidelity and consensual non-monogamy and we know that being in some type of sexually open relationship is more common in the lgbtq community but it brings with it its own set of complexities compared to monogamy so tell us a little bit about you know some of the issues you see around relationships in the lgbtq
1: community So it's what's kind of funny is that I think in a lot of ways, the couples work that I do with people who are in heterosexual relationships versus those who are in same-sex relationships is really similar. It's a lot of the same issues that come up. And I would say that the big things are not connecting. Just emotionally not connecting with each other, not knowing how to communicate. That is the same across across any type of relationship. And I would say that there is a lot of, the majority of couples that I see have cheated. Cheated in in quotes as, as someone has stepped out of the boundaries of their relationship. And I would say that that is usually the thing that leads a heterosexual couple into therapy is that someone has cheated, but with gay couples, kind of the thing that leads them into therapy is that they are fighting more. They're not getting along. So it's as though heterosexual couples kind of have a tendency to stonewall a little bit more, whereas gay couples have a tendency to maybe fight more.
0: Yeah, that's interesting.
1: And they are coming in to relieve the fighting, whereas the heterosexual couple is coming in to relieve the infidelity. Which is not to say that heterosexual couples don't argue because, you know, any couple that is not communicating (laughs) is going to lead to an argument. And so it, it ends up being very similar work, but for gay couples, it's generally not the infidelity or the cheating that has led to the therapy.
0: And do you think that that might partially be because the way that, say, a same-sex couple views sex and the importance of monogamy might be a little bit different from the way that people in heterosexual relationships view that? Um, Do you think that's part of the explanation?
1: So I think that part of the explanation is how they view it. I also think that gay couples are more likely to have an explicit conversation about the rules of a relationship and come to an agreement that they are both satisfied with, whereas with heterosexual couples, it is just agreed upon, not even agreed upon, it's just assumed that it is monogamous. Yeah. So gay men are more likely to be having a discussion about hey we're both sleeping with other people right like we're going to continue doing that or this is what we're okay with this is what we're not okay with whereas heterosexual couples just assume the monogamy right so then when the when the stepping outside of that but those bounds occur it's like how could that happen when it was never really discussed to begin with
0: yeah in a lot of relationships monogamy is assumed And instead, monogamy needs to be defined and negotiated because monogamy can mean different things to different people, right? So is it okay to kiss somebody who is not your primary partner? Is it okay to flirt with somebody who's not your primary partner? Like A lot of people never have these conversations and they just sort of assume that their partner's definition of monogamy is the same as theirs. And that's where a lot of the disagreements happen and where one partner doesn't think they've committed infidelity, but the other partner thinks that they have. So I think that really speaks to the importance of getting on the same page about that very early on in the relationship so as to prevent that issue from arising later. Now, I wanted to talk about bisexuality for a moment and whether you see any unique issues with bisexual clients compared to people who might identify as, say, exclusively gay. You know, are there any unique issues, struggles that that bisexual people face?
1: Yeah, I think that um, specifically people that identify as bisexual, a lot of them that I've worked with come in with this sense of not belonging to either community and receive a lot of messaging from both their gay friends and their heterosexual friends that, like, they kind of don't belong or they have a sense of belonging more when they are dating someone who is the who who appears to be the same sex or same gender as them i think that there is this very interesting thing that happens with the community where, you know, they are in a heterosexual relationship and therefore everyone views them as straight or they are in what is presumed to be a a same-sex relationship and everybody assumes they are gay. So it almost, so I identify as gay, so I don't know exactly what that experience feels like, but from what I'm told from my patients who do have that experience is that they always feel like they are leaving off one half of themselves that they don't always get to be fully themselves maybe with their partner they feel like they're able to but that they can often feel like they're just that they're just not connected with part of themselves or or sort of like not able to be with that part of society when they are living in this other part so there's this sort of in-between world interestingly when i have worked with people who identify specifically as queer and could be on that spectrum in that middle wiggly area somewhere, they don't seem to have the same exact hang up. Like they don't seem, and when I say hang up, like they don't, they just don't feel like, from what they've expressed to me, that they're in that same area. They kind of feel more accepted by both.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And I think it speaks to the importance of us when we're talking about the LGBTQ community. To talk about specific subgroups within that community because what they experience might be very different based on what their identity is and how it's perceived. And I think, you know, with the term bisexuality in particular, so many people have their own view and understanding of that, right? But sometimes people have drastically different definitions of what bisexuality means. And so I think, you know, sometimes with these identities, it might depend on how. Their experiences is navigating that with the outside world and how, in terms of how other people are perceiving them and the assumptions that they're placing on them based on their stereotypes of people who have that, you know, specific identity label. So I think there's a lot of interesting research to be done there to better explore how different members of this community navigate their sex lives and relationships.
1: And in in the past, that's been difficult, but it's starting to grow because people are starting to have these larger uh, identifications. I remember one of the research studies that I worked on in the past, we had almost 1,100 people from across the United States that identified, you know, somewhere along that spectrum. And if I remember correctly, I think only like 13 people identified as something other than gay or bisexual. But that portion is is changing. People are just beginning to identify differently, which you know, you, you just can't do very many statistical analysis with an N of 13.
0: Yeah, no, it's true. And when I conduct my own research and ask people about their sexual identities, you know, the, the vast majority of people will identify as Gay, lesbian or bisexual, but increasingly in the last few years, a very high percentage of people also identifying as pansexual. But when it comes to other identity labels like queer, you know, you see much lower numbers than that. and it is very difficult to do those subgroup analyses unless you go out and really intentionally try and collect a super large sample of people with, with each of those identity labels. So that's part of the reason why we don't know as much about this. It's because it's harder to recruit sufficient size samples.
1: And we don't want to put a definition on someone else, but it's almost like you, I don't know, in some ways, it it would be helpful from a research perspective to say, like, this is how we're, you know, for the purposes of this study, this is how we are labeling these things, which one of these applies most to you, Instead of being like, here are your 15 options, because, you know, the definitions for two people could be the same, but one could say, I identify as pan and the other one say queer, but their definition be exactly the same thing. Right.
0: Now we have much more to discuss, including LGBTQ sexual health, but first a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode of the sex and psychology podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Promescent. Promescent is here to help you get better in bed. Check out their VitaFlux supplements, which aim to enhance sexual health by increasing libido, sexual desire, and orgasm satisfaction in men and women alike. VitaFlux can also help to increase erection strength in men and vaginal lubrication in women. Permescent's other sexual wellness products include their signature delay spray, which can help men last longer in bed, a female arousal gel that heightens sensitivity, and a line of personal lubricants that come in several varieties. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. Also, all orders come in discreet packaging to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T.com. And we're back. My guest today is sex therapist Dr. Thomas Whitfield. Our next topic is sexual health among LGBTQ persons. So let's start by talking about some of the work you've done, Thomas, on HIV prevention and specifically use of PrEP. Now, as a starting point, for those who might not be familiar with PrEP, can you just give us the quick primer on what it is?
1: Yeah, PrEP is pre-exposure prophylaxis. It is a pill that people take once a day that stops them from becoming HIV positive. It's a mix of two uh, HIV medications. So if you are HIV negative, you get a prescription, you take this pill every day, and you could be exposed to HIV and still not become HIV positive.
0: And how effective is it based on the studies and data that
1: you've seen? It's like more effective than condoms, it's over 99% effective with daily use. There has been other research that has come out that has shown that you can take it like three days a week or four days a week. Or if you know that you're going to have sex, you can take it the two days before, then the day of, and then the day after. And that can also be effective, but it is not as effective as taking it every single day. Also, people are just not very good at predicting when they are going to have sex.
0: Gee, I wonder why.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. like It's difficult to think ahead. Okay, in two days, am I going to to engage in risk because the majority of people when hiv risk is happening it's not something that's planned for yeah. people are generally not thinking i am you know in x amount of days i'm going to be engaging in risk there are exceptions to that rule of course but the majority of it when this stuff is happening it's it's kind of in the moment or becomes a pattern of behavior So that is an option for taking it as well. However, as far as I know, for prescription, it is pretty much you take this every day.
0: Yeah, and it's becoming increasingly common. In fact, the most recent data I've seen, I think this was 2019 data, found that about one in three Gay and bisexual men today in the United States are using PrEP for HIV prevention and men who have sex with men are the most at-risk group in the United States when it comes to HIV risk. And so we've really seen this explosive growth in usage of PrEP across the last decade. And so... This has raised a lot of interesting questions, and I know you've done a lot of research in this area, so I'm curious to, to dive in and hear what you found. But one of the questions is, you know, what are the psychological impacts of PrEP? So if you're taking this pill that's, say, 99% were so effective in terms of preventing HIV what is the impact of that you know for example in terms of reducing anxiety around contracting a, a deadly std or in terms of your willingness to become sexually involved with an hiv positive partner you know what have you found in your work about the psychological impacts
1: so I, I want to go back to one thing that you just said, because I think it's really important to, to kind of highlight here is like, yes, when I started doing prep research in I think 2014, 2015, it was still very new. People did not really know a ton about it. And there has been a huge increase in uptake since then. However, that increase in uptake is among white men. Yeah. And white men are not the ones that are at the highest risk of HIV in the United States. So although we are seeing increases in uptake, it's not always getting to the populations that really need it. So yes, it's getting to gay and bisexual men. It is not so much getting to gay and bisexual men of color. That's
0: such an important point.
1: It's a big issue it's a huge issue
0: yeah in terms of their psychological health or just in terms of the way that they think about hiv in
1: general yeah it is it's really interesting so my my dissertation was all about how can we get prep into the hands of younger people that are at risk and the thing is is a lot of young people don't view themselves as at risk They don't think of HIV as this thing that could really harm them and really kill them. And that is because, you know, the the rate of death due to HIV has really gone down or complications associated with HIV has really gone down. So it just doesn't have all of that stigma that it used to. Is there still stigma about HIV? Absolutely. Is it as high as it used to be? No. But PrEP, there is also stigma associated with PrEP. And people will know that someone is on PrEP and think, oh, they must be at risk for HIV. So, I think that there is this new level of people going on prep and experiencing stigma for being on prep and then not wanting to be on prep because of that stigma or fear that people are going to judge them for being on prep. So, uh, I've worked with people who feel like they have to hide it or they don't want to go on it because their insurance also goes to their parents' house and then their parent is going to know that they're on prep or perhaps their partner is going to know that they're on prep. So, then they just Don't want to be on it. But then there are other people that are on PrEP and feel empowered and feel safer because they're on PrEP. And maybe they want to continue using condoms, even though they are on PrEP. However, research is showing that condom use does actually go down when people start using PrEP. and So I think that depending on the person, there are a lot of pros and a lot of cons. Some people don't want to take a medication every day either, though, and there could be some long-term side effects. We don't know for sure. There have been some issues with bone density, but that, again, is not for everyone.
0: Yeah. I think you raise a lot of important points there and i think that it also goes back to the generational difference we were talking about earlier where there's a massive generational difference in the gay and bisexual male community in terms of how they view hiv and you have a lot of older gay and bi men today who look at you know the rise in condomless sex among young adults and they're horrified by it because they spent so long you know Grappling with the impact of this disease and their friends dying, and trying to actively promote more condom use and safer sex, and then, you know, you have a younger generation that's a lot of them are discarding condoms, right? And so, you know, again, that just goes back to differences and why I think it's so important when we're talking about the LGBTQ community to also talk about the issue of age and generation and look at how these things are being perceived and and processed differently.
1: There are also a large amount of Older LGBTQ men, specifically, who are angry about medications like PrEP and are angry that younger people are able to engage in some of these behaviors without the fear that they had. Um, And some, you know, older gay and bisexual men being anti-PrEP because of it that sort of feel robbed in some way.
0: Oh, it's so fascinating. I actually want to do a whole episode on this particular idea at some point about, you know, sort of this era of what a lot of people feel is consequence-free sex, because they can take PrEP that makes their risk of HIV very close to zero. There's a vaccine for HPV, the human papillomavirus. You can get vaccinated for hepatitis. And, you know, you can take If you happen to contract herpes, like there are daily antivirals you can take to suppress outbreaks, and then, you know, all the bacterial STDs are curable with antibiotics, at least currently, even though some of them are becoming more resistant to our frontline antibiotic treatments, but a lot of people just don't feel the same level of fear for STDs as they did before, and so that's really drastically changing the way that they're approaching sex and their willingness to take sexual risks.
1: Yeah, I have yet to, in in all of the work that I've done with young people around HIV, none come to mind for me off the top of my head right now of anyone really expressing any concern about an STI outside of HIV. So when it comes to PrEP, that could be helpful for people to remember that there are these other STIs that are possible, but it doesn't seem to be something that becomes much of a concern.
0: Yeah, and so I think that's why And and I think you found this in your research that there is some level of risk compensation that happens when people start PrEP where they become less likely to use condoms or they have more new sexual partners, you know, and that's part of the rise behind all of the, it's okay, I'm on PrEP memes that we've seen on social media, right? Because people feel like, you know, their concern about HIV has been negated and so they're not really worried about anything else. So can you just tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So I actually published Why I Quit. What I did is I asked a qualitative question to people that had quit using PrEP about why they stopped using it. And I mean, the sample was, it's been a while since I've looked at this paper, but I believe the sample was only around 20. So I mean, it was all qualitative, very anecdotal. But there were a few people that had responded saying that they had stopped using condoms, then they got an STI, and then once they got an STI, they thought, okay, well, this isn't protecting against that. Like, I would rather just go back to using condoms. So they stopped using PrEP. And then there were a lot of people that it was about insurance, changed insurance, new insurance, wouldn't cover it. I'm not sure what PrEP costs right now, but at the time that I had been doing the research, I think that it was about $1,200 a month, which most people cannot afford $1,200 a month to take a pill.
0: That's a luxury. Yes.
1: Yeah, so it, I mean, with that comes not only just the medication, but the doctor's appointments that are needed, the testing that's needed because going on prep is not just going to your doctor once and getting a refill. You have to go back every three months. You have to get tested for STIs, for HIV, the doctor's appointment, all of that ends up costing a lot of money. So changes in health insurance were a big barrier for some people to just be like, yeah, I'm not going on it anymore. Like my health insurance changed and now I have to go through this entire process again or I just, I can't go to the doctor every three months, I don't have time.
0: Yeah, and I think the insurance issue gets back to part of the reason why we have the big racial disparity in terms of usage and uptake on PrEP, because there are big differences in employment status and health benefits based on race in the United States, and that can be a barrier to getting on PrEP in the first place. And it also further depends on which state you live in and how things are regulated in your state, because I know in some states you can get discounts cards or coupons that essentially reimburse your insurance for all the cost of prep. So it doesn't really cost you anything. But in other states, it's out of pocket expense. And it also depends on your insurance company. Yeah.
1: And there's generic brands now, which at at the time that I was doing research and that that study came out, it was just the, 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 name brand. So that absolutely makes a huge difference and and to touch back on the disparity amongst race and ethnicity you know there's a lot more stigma of hiv among communities of color and that that does not exist as much among the white community and that makes a huge difference too with people going on the medication or knowing where to get it or even bring it up to their provider
0: yeah and i think it's so interesting i'm just remembering now what you had mentioned earlier since you were talking about that stigma again, about how there's this slut shaming that's going on for a lot of people who are on PrEP, right? Where they're being shamed for taking control of their sexual health. And it's like, that's messed up. Like, for somebody who is, you know, going out of their way to really try and protect themselves against the sexually transmitted infections, for them to be shamed for that is like, it's problematic. But I think it speaks to the broader issue of slut-shaming we have in our culture and how it, you know, exists even within the LGBTQ community. And it's a problem. And to the extent that that discourages people from taking steps toward protecting their sexual health, then that's a problem.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think within the LGBTQ community, there is all this talk of accept us, accept us, accept us. We want to be who we are. And then there are a lot of people within the community that are like, be who you are, but be this specific thing that we want you to be.
0: Yeah. Exactly. So I know we've talked a lot about sexual health among men who have sex with men, but what about women who have sex with women? You know, A lot of people don't see woman-on-woman sex as being risky in terms of sexually transmitted infections because it doesn't fit with their narrow definition of what sex is because most people define sex as penis and vagina intercourse or penile-anal intercourse, and, and they don't count other activities as being sex. So curious what do you think lesbian and bisexual women need to know about maintaining good sexual health
1: so i think that specifically with lesbians that there are still all of the skin-on-skin contact stis that can be transmitted obviously the risk for hiv is much 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 lower but you know it still exists to some degree if there are open wounds that happen to be there Um, and. There's been some research that's shown that lesbians are much better at having conversations about STIs than gay men. And I think that some of that just has to do with the hormones that come up for gay men and that that conversation kind of goes out the window. And I think gay men could probably learn a lot from lesbians about how to have more safe sex.
0: Mm -hmm. And also how to have better sex because lesbians, you know, even though they have sex less frequently on average, they spend... Like three times as long on it, right? So when they have sex, they make it count, right?
1: Oh, yeah. The communication is there. Yes. (laughs) The communication (laughs) is there for lesbians that I don't, that does not seem to always be there for gay and bisexual men. I would say that in. In terms of specifically bisexual women, is that bisexual women have a tendency to also engage in sex with men who are bisexual. And I think that in some ways, you have to be aware of some of the risk that that is involved with men who have sex with men, which is just on the face. Like STIs and HIV are higher within the gay and bisexual male community. It's just a fact. And I think that that's something that you have to take into consideration as a bisexual woman of, am I engaging in sex with bisexual men? And am I inherently at more risk because of that? Which you may or may not be. And you could also be a bisexual woman who is having sex with a heterosexual male or someone that you perceive to be heterosexual who could also be at risk or have STIs from heterosexual partners, I think that there is a very real sort of thing to take into consideration there, which does not mean that you shouldn't have sex with particular people, but that you should always be thinking about your sexual health and other people's sexual health
0: yeah and i know we're running short of time so one last question and this is applicable to to everybody is how do you communicate better about stds and you know sexual health risks with a partner like a lot of people don't even know how do i bring this up with a potential new partner so do you have any tips on how to communicate about sexual health risks and make it less awkward
1: I think that you can communicate about sexual health risk the same way that you would communicate about any sort of conversation that could be sensitive. And I think that that is going into the conversation from a standpoint of that you want to protect yourself and you want to protect the other person, that you ultimately want to be happy and you want the other person to be happy. And, you know, for both of us to be happy, these are maybe the things that we should know about each other. And if you are someone who has an STI, like, this is, this is the STI that I have. This is how we can help you to not get it. And these are sort of the steps that we can take together.
0: Yeah, great advice. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation. It was really a pleasure to have you here. Please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and watch your YouTube channel.
1: Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at PhD, and you can search for me on YouTube, Shit They Won't Tell You in Sex Ed. You can find me in those places. If you follow me on Instagram, I really post all of my links there, so links to the podcast and everything else.
0: Well, thanks again for your time. It was great to speak with you again and catch up. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at SexAndPsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, to learn more about the science of sexual fantasies. Thanks again for listening. Until next
1: time.